Hello and welcome to See You in Court, the podcast that informs you about the Georgia civil justice system, what it means to you, and how it protects individual rights. This podcast is a collaboration between the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Your hosts are Robin Frazier-Clark and Lester Tate, who are both past presidents of the State Bar of Georgia and currently serve on the board of directors of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. And now this episode of See You in Court. Good afternoon, friends and lovers of the law, and welcome to See You in Court. I am Robin Fraser-Clark, and with us here today is our fabulous co-host, Lester Tate. Lester, how are you doing today? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm doing fabulous. Uh, you know, you are. Uh, and that's the nice thing about not doing the intro. I get called fabulous every week when really that should be your credit, I think. But no, you, you, you are fabulous. That was the only word I could just popped in my mind to describe you. Um, so we had a big uh, football weekend, um, big Georgia win, but unfortunately it beat they beat your Gamecocks. They beat they beat South Carolina. I think we did we did really well in the first yeah, half. You sure did. And then my Georgia Tech team uh, got beat by Ole Miss. So uh, I didn't have any winners except the Falcons. But I think I, we're not. We hadn't introduced our guest yet today. But I saw he's a Texas a, a Texas Longhorn here. So he he he's yep. got to be having a happy football season there. Well, I'm we're, sure we're having a it's a, it's a rare period of winning for us that I'm sure <laughs> soon to come to an end. <laughs> Very, very exciting. And um, Lester, I got to see our good friend and colleague, Jay Cook, a, a former president of the State Bar and uh-huh. a former guest on one of our first guests on the podcast. I had dinner yes. with him Friday night in Athens, so it was great, great to see him. Jay is, uh, Jay is a, a titan of the Georgia Bar, and it's always good to see him. And uh, and I'm 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 friends with him even when he's rooting for the dogs against the Yellow Jackets or the Gamecocks, you know. Yeah, for sure. Well, today, and I don't know if you noticed, Lester, but I said good afternoon. You did. You did. For, for a change, because we are taping this late in the afternoon on Monday, September 18. Usually, I say good morning. Um, and I guess with your kind of football weekend, that meant a lot of bourbon for you. Well, there was a lot of bourbon. There was also this little matter of me having a birthday last week <laughs> uh, on the day yes. before I had to go do two days of trial. Yeah. So I really couldn't celebrate. So I postponed it to the weekend. Uh, so we had uh, barbecue, barbecue, chicken wings, bourbon and football from starting with game day and going till the uh, to the last uh, the last horn. They don't shoot guns off anymore, you know. So uh, it was a it was a good it was a good fun day. I enjoyed it. Yeah, it sounds like a great way to celebrate your birthday. So happy birthday, um, my fellow Libra. Yes. Yeah. No, I'm a Virgo. I'm the Virgo. Oh, you're a Virgo. I'm yes, sorry. That's right. Okay. That's right. Well, today we are uh, excited to be talking with Texas lawyer Martin J. Siegel, who is also a newly published author. And we'll be exploring his new book, Judgment and Mercy, The Turbulent Life and Times of the Judge Who Condemned the Rosenbergs, published earlier this year by Cornell University Press. Let me introduce our guest, Martin Siegel, to our listeners. Martin Siegel's law practice focuses on briefing and arguing complex appeals in federal and state courts. He also handles key motions in trial courts and consults on legal analysis and strategy. 
Siegel has won appeals in the U.S. Supreme Court, federal appellate courts around the country, and the Texas Supreme Court, and has repeatedly earned recognition from peers. In 2012, he was elected to the Texas Bar Foundation, a fellowship limited to 0.3% of licensed Texas attorneys each year based on regional peer nomination. The Texas Bar Foundation supports projects providing affordable legal services for underserved communities, promotes professionalism, and educates the public about the justice system. Martin graduated from the University of Texas undergrad and then Harvard Law School. After graduating from Harvard Law School, Martin was the last law clerk for Judge Irving R. Kaufman, the subject of Martin's new book, who served on the Second Circuit. Martin then served as an assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York and a special counsel on the staff of the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee from 2001 to, from 2000 to 2001. He now practices law in Houston, Texas, and teaches American legal history at the University of Houston Law Center, where he also directs the Appellate Civil Rights Clinic. He also serves on the board of the Anti-Defamation League, Southwest Region, and has drafted state legislative testimony and amicus briefing for the ADL. Martin is also a senior editor of Litigation, a quarterly publication of the American Bar Association's Section on Litigation. Wow. Martin, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, that's oh, great. Yeah. I love the uh, Litigation magazine that the, the section puts out. It's one of the best legal publications. Yeah. Right now. I'm really glad to hear that. I've, I've been on that for a number of years, and I, I, I need to, like, tape that and, you know, play it at our next meeting because uh, often often we're not sure, uh, you know, how, how widely it gets out there who reads it. But that's great to hear. You know, well, Martin, I, I, I love it, you, too. Thank you. I, love, I was going to say I love it, too. And that's how I've even found out about you, Martin, and the book that you've you've written. Yeah, that's right. I had a short piece uh, about the book. So yeah. I watched the Paxton impeachment and I didn't see you on there. I thought every lawyer in Texas was involved in <laughs> right, that a, case at some at some level or whatever, you know. Yeah, it's a poor commentary on my practice and my status here that uh, <laughs> I, I was one of the few not not involved. But uh, in the end, I'm not so, so sure that's bad. <laughs> Well, let's yeah. let's talk a little bit first before we get into your book, and I'm I'm very interested in that. It sounds wonderful, but I wanted to share with our listeners just a little bit about your law practice. Can you tell us? Um, well, you, you you worked in in the uh, in uh, the I guess um, United States Senate as a staffer, which Lester also worked in Washington. Um, for, for a period of time before he started practicing law. Um, but then you then you came back to Texas. I guess you're from Texas originally and came, yeah, came back right. to I, Texas. Yeah, that's right. I'm from Houston, and I, I grew up in Houston, so I, I moved home at, uh, I guess, the end of 2001. Uh, that's right. You know, and, Martin, and tell- I, in, in looking at the, the TV coverage of the Trump indictment and everything, everybody that they have on as a legal analyst has been an assistant U.S. attorney from the Southern District of of, of New York. And so yeah. I saw you were doing that, and I was like, going to have to ask him, what is it about the Southern District that makes you an expert in, you know, in everything that comes after that? Right. Well, you know, the, the best expression about the Southern District, which you, you might have heard at some point, is um, they, you know, they, they have been around so long. I, I want to say it's yeah. possible they predate 
I don't think predate the Justice Department exactly, or they're sort of simultaneous with the just with the sort of original Justice Department. Um, but because of the autonomy that they enjoy and have for a long time, they're referred to, or at least by themselves, as the sovereign district of New York. So yeah, they get to they also get to it's almost like a TV, yeah, they hand you a TV contract along with your federal, you know, employment <laughs> forms to fill out. So but I was uh, I was on the civil side. I was not a federal prosecutor, so that the, nobody wants to hear from the guys who you know defend the Bureau of Prisons and the DEA when they get into car accidents and that sort of thing. Did you try a lot of cases while you were there? I tried a few. I don't know about a lot. I probably had about eight, ten trials, something like that, um, ranging from you know really uh, short and small kind of tort cases. You, we defend all federal agencies in all kinds of FTCA cases and Bivens civil rights cases. So I had a case involving some, uh, federal prison guards. Um, I defended, uh, my favorite, uh, the least, the most unusual was defending the head of the CIA's, uh, technical services division, a guy named Sidney Gottlieb about whom a biography was later written. And he was in charge of the CIA's program to experiment with LSD in the 50s and 60s and gave it to people unwittingly, um, really did some bad things. Um, and, and this was a case brought by somebody who was convinced that they had been a victim of that testing program. Um, so we, you know, we had to defend that, defend him and defend that program to some degree. Um, so that was interesting. But we, we also do uh, some of the trials are affirmative. So we do in New York, the way the office is organized, we also do enforcement of civil rights cases. Um, so I brought some voting rights cases and uh, ADA case, um, things like that. Um, some cases under what then was a brand new law, the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act uh, against people who had barricaded themselves in a reproductive health clinic in Manhattan. Um, so yeah, kind of both sides of the docket and and you you do get some trial experience. Yeah, and then you come back to Houston, I guess, and, and begin a practice, a private practice there. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Were you a trial lawyer just doing everything that, that came in the door? Or well, like, like I worked Lester and I do. <laughs> <laughs> for a time, I worked at a plaintiff side uh, boutique um, for about five years or so. Um, and then I went on my own and to, to handle appeals because I really sort of decided, um, although I, I very much like trials in the sense of, you know, being court and, and trying cases to juries, that that's a lot of fun. And I enjoyed that a lot in the U.S. Attorney's Office. Um, I, I didn't I don't miss and already was sure I wouldn't miss um, sort of everything that precedes, you know, jury selection, I guess, um, you know, the, the long life cycle of a case, all the discovery, the work with experts, you know, that sort of thing I was never a huge fan of um, and do like, uh, you know, legal research, do like writing um, I, as as you mentioned. And that's the source of a book. I'd been a, a appellate law clerk and when I was in the U.S. attorney's office. You, I handled a lot of appeals because you do your own appeals there. Um, so I kind of decided that, that that slice of practice was really more of my alley, I think. You had a great, uh, I, I looked at your website, you know, and you had a great thing on there, which is probably uh, certainly applicable to me, probably not Robin. But, you know, Robin and I have argued a bunch of appeals, too, although both of us are primarily trial lawyers. And you had this great thing on there about how, you know, a trial lawyer probably really shouldn't argue a very important appeal because it's a different audience out there. And I thought well, he, he's I mean, very perceptive know, about that. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, appellate, appellate lawyers sort of have to say that, um, of course, and justify our existences. And 
I, I do think it's true. A lot, obviously, a lot of great trial lawyers are also really great writers and really great appellate lawyers. So it's it's not the skills aren't at all mutually exclusive. But um, I think what you say is right. It is it is a different audience. And and of course, the most important part is not the your fifteen or twenty minutes of oral argument, but it's the written product. It's the briefing. Um, and so, you know, the, the quality of the writing and knowing how to knowing how to achieve, you know, concision and uh, what's important and what isn't and, and how to how to make something that otherwise can't help but being a little bit dry, still lively and, you know, want to be finished uh, by your audience. Who, I mean, you're writing for judges and their, their stack of cases, you know, after yours is a large one. So you want you want to hold their interest. Um, and, and, you know, that's a something of a discrete skill. So, uh, yeah, I. I that's how we market ourselves. We we have to we have to say that. I also noted that you've won appeals in the in the United States Supreme Court, where our last guest had has argued Craig Jones. He argued two times in front of the United States Supreme Court. Uh-huh. I've never done it, and and now it's so specialized. Um, but tell us a little bit how that was. Well, sure. Um, and I have to say, I haven't done it either, uh, because the, the case that I won there uh, was on the cert petition. Um, and and so it was a it arose from a police shooting uh, here in Houston. And um, that case, which I was not involved in at the trial level, got, you know, far along, but was then dismissed uh, on summary judgment, um, both on qualified immunity, but but on both prongs of it. In other words, a finding that there had been no violation, and then also that the whatever law was applicable wasn't clearly established. Um, so I handled that in the Fifth Circuit, and we lost. Um, and it was it was an appeal from that 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 um, the Supreme Court sort of sat on the petition for a long time, but ultimately uh, granted it and reversed that dismissal uh, without argument. So I, I'm disappointed. Not to get the argument, but, you know, very happy to win. Uh, but yeah, uh, yeah but it would, would have been great to, to argue as well. Yeah. And so now is your appellate practice all still civil cases? You don't do criminal appellate law? I, I don't. Yeah, I really I really just do civil cases. Um, and that runs the gamut from commercial cases to, you know, really any sort of civil case. It's, it's mostly been, I would say, mostly a mix between commercial cases, tort cases and civil rights and constitutional cases um, over the years. So uh, a lot of each of those buckets. And then just the occasional odd, you know, something else. Um, but but that's been the bulk of it, I would say. And you're also a professor at, um, you're a law professor. Um, how did you get into that? And, and tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So, so um, I teach two things at the University of Houston Law Center here in Houston. Um, I teach a legal history course uh, every other semester, which I've, I'm only now doing. This semester is the second time I've done it, um, and it's just you know it's it's a, also a bit of an outgrowth from the book. It's it's really something I enjoy a lot, um, and we it it kind of runs from uh 1798 or so uh up to 2000 but but as i tell the class quite frankly up front i'm i'm someone who's sprinting to the 20th century as fast as i can because i'm really uh i i'm i'm not qualified i am to, to be covering the 19th century that's stuff i know less well um so most it's sort of overwhelmingly weighted to uh, the 20th century and it's really it's most you know it's a lot of civil liberties history and constitutional history more than anything else it would cover a couple of other subjects like the growth of tort law after World War II and antitrust. You know, we do touch on some other things, but it's it's mostly constitutional and civil rights history. And I 
as I say uh, to them, I, I don't want to be duplicating their con law class. So the, the goal really is to not so much focus on doctrine, although inevitable, you know, inevitably you do some of that, but um, more the what's the social and political and economic background um, and history that, that gives rise to these cases. Um, and after after major decisions, you know, what what happens next? What's the fallout? Um, that's really what we try to cover uh, more than really just here's a case and what was the holding and how is the doctrine changing. So that that's a lot of fun. And the other thing I do there is um, I started and uh, administer a an appellate civil rights clinic. Um, again, kind of growing out of my interest in civil rights law and civil rights appeals. So we it kind of functions both as a way to teach just appellate practice, but also like any clinic to work on real cases uh, with the students. Very small. We just have three students each time and so far. And uh, we try to do one merits case where we're rep directly representing the appellant and then also uh, write an amicus brief. Um, so that, that's also fairly new. Just the last uh, couple of semesters I've done that. Is there a like a student practice act or something like that in Texas? In Georgia, we have a student practice act where they can actually argue in a, that we have clinics at our law schools. They can actually actually argue appeals in front yeah. of the Supreme Court and the Court of Appeals of Georgia. That's also Eleventh Circuit. We had a student argue in Eleventh Circuit. Yeah, th there's a similar uh, arrangement here, and um, you in the Fifth Circuit you have to ask. Uh, you kind of have to file a motion and ask them to admit and and allow to argue a student practitioner. Uh, but they're you know that that's a history of that and there's provision for that. Um, so yeah, yeah, same thing. And that's that's you know that's part of what we're selling to students is come here and work on a real case and uh, you might get argument you know as well. I'm curious, how would you because <clears throat> you know you're you're uh, talking about the legal history and particularly. 18th, 19th, 20th century legal history. Um, I think about the Roosevelt, you know, the court during the Roosevelt yeah. administration that threw out all the New Deal stuff and then sort of, you know, do, do you see, I'm not talking about necessarily ideology, but sort of from a contrarian point of view, the current Supreme Court being like that? Yeah, very, very much so. I mean, I, I well, I, I'd put it this way. I think we're, I think what we're clearly experiencing is a constitutional revolution. And although to some degree it's a reaction, uh, right? I mean, we're we're reverting to some degree um, and charting new territory, you know, as well. But it's it's such a sea change uh, that it is very similar to me to the 1930s to the to the you know New Deal court that eventually ends the Lochner era. Um, I mean, maybe I'm not sure. Maybe your question, man, is it like the Lochner era court in the sense that they're throwing at they're finding unconstitutional? It's a muscular kind of aggressive. Uh, yeah. set of well, both really yeah you know, yeah both, it, both it has hallmarks both. of both for sure yeah um i mean we you know it, the 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 first class when i first designed that legal history class maybe three or four terms ago but you know before i actually started teaching it uh the, the first class was just going to be a kind of you know we all get to know each other and and talk about this kind of arcane useless field of legal history and how well you know this would be fun for them because it's a lot like their undergraduate history, but it doesn't doesn't really matter, you know. Is it gonna, certainly isn't going to affect your grade on your bar exam and doesn't matter otherwise. And of course, now that's completely changed. All of constitutional law is legal history, you know. So in order to practice constitutional law, you kind of have to be an amateur legal historian uh, or or get a professional to help you out. So 
it's funny how it's become, you know, what we say to them now is this is this is not academic anymore. This is constitutional law now rises and falls based on legal history. Yeah, that that's a whole nother podcast of whether <laughs> I agree with that. Yeah, I have some I have some thoughts about uh, what our founders thought, whether abortion was a, you know, protected right back when they wrote the Constitution. But we we don't have to get into we don't have to get into that. Um, but Martin, let, let, first of all, we love authors and we love authors who have written a, something legal, you know, about a legal incident. Yeah. Um, and your book is in, entitled Judgment and Mercy, The Turbulent Life and Times of the Judge Who Condemned the Rosenbergs. And it's a judge you obviously knew very well because you were his law clerk. Yeah. Yeah. Tell, tell us a little bit about how. Were you, were you thinking about that while you were clerking for him, or is this just looking back and and you think, wow, he's he's got a really interesting life. I'm going to write about that. Yeah, no, it's very much it's very much the former of those two. Um, but I have to preface that by saying my clerkship with him was really different and unusual because um, he died midway through my job. So I started working for him in August of 1991, and he died in February of 1992, and through the last half of that or so, he was declining in health and eventually stopped coming into the office. So I actually, you know, I obviously I interacted with him and knew him, but but much less so than almost anyone else actually who clerked for him over his 40 years, 40 plus years on the bench. Um, so I, I think, I hope it's not, doesn't sound self-congratulatory to say that that gave me more objectivity, I think, um, than, I, than I think it might have been possible to have for other clerks. And I say that because he was a person about whom clerks would have and did have really strong feelings. He was a really difficult boss, um, sort of tyrannical in, in a lot of ways, would, would yell at law clerks. A lot of law clerks quit over the years, which, you know, as you know, is a really unusual thing. I mean, it's a, it's a one year job. And and part of the reason law students take it is how it's going to look on their resume and, you know, the, sure. the prestige of it. So you, you have every incentive to like just however bad the conditions to just stick out the year and leave quietly, you know, so to, to quit, um, you know, especially in earlier years when he was a powerful and very well-known figure in the New York, you know, at least the New York legal community and to some degree the you know, the United States. So that just kind of shows you how tough the conditions were sometimes. And I didn't see a lot of that. Um, I, I, I saw a little at the beginning and I kind of got some of the Kaufman treatment um, early on, but it was a faint echo. And, you know, he he just didn't have the energy um, at that point any longer. Um, so so that, that did give me more distance, I think, um, to see him less like a, a mentor or someone who I really hated because the job had been just so difficult and more just, you know, someone at, at a greater remove. Um, I, I, you know, you, you mentioned like, did I years later sort of think, you know, is this somebody I wanted to write about? Um, I, I thought really from, you know, the incident in the funeral that I begin the book with, uh, which was such an unusual thing. Um, almost from then I was thinking, I'd love to write a book about this guy. I think this guy is worth the book. He's so, his personality and his life have been so fascinating well beyond this one famous case um, that everybody, you know, everybody's heard of the case. Um, but, but he did so much more uh, in his legal life and and his time on the bench uh, and just a, a truly like kind of tragic family life. Um, he's very, you know, he's very 
lot of gray there, a lot of good, a lot of bad, it all kind of jumbled up together in this this interesting package that made me think he he really was worth a book and in a way that, you know, a lot of court of appeals judges, it's interesting to lawyers, but it might not travel beyond, you know, their story might not appeal beyond lawyers. Um, I thought his had some potential to, you know, be interesting just to general readers. So what was his pathway to the bench? What did he do? To, to just to describe him, tell us a little bit about his career. Yeah. Well, you mentioned, you know, you mentioned these uh, former Southern District of New York assistant U.S. attorneys who are on TV. He, w- he was like a very early version of that. He was a version of that from the 1930s. So his, his upbringing is very, you know, classic rags to riches story, very much the Jewish immigrant experience in New York. His parents were immigrants. They'd only been in this country for six years when he was born. Um, he's born on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, um, where you know m- most Jews lived at the time. had had no money, um, so he his path to success was just racing through public schools. Um, and he graduated high school early. He got to college, uh, went to Fordham, um, and graduated a combined law school uh, college program that was five years. So he got his law degree before he could even take the bar. He got his law degree before he turned twenty one, and he had to cool his heels for several months. Um, before he would even be eligible to take the bar. And in classic Kaufman fashion, he's not someone who let rules and procedures get in his way. So he tried to circumvent that by using a family or a friend connection to the chief judge of the Court of Appeals in New York, the highest judge in the New York state system, to get him to waive that requirement. (laughs) And the answer came back, you know, tell that kid to wait a little while, you know, a few months waiting will do him good. Uh, And, you know, waiting is precisely the thing that he, you know, had real trouble with. He's the kind of person who wanted everything done yesterday um, and was incredibly efficient and incredibly energetic. So uh, he works in private practice for what, I think, four years. Um, um, The the lawyer he's working for ends up being his father-in-law. He ends up marrying the the daughter of the boss. Um, And he, he makes his way into the U.S. Attorney's Office, which was not easy because, you know, they mostly hired from the Ivy League. So he was coming from Fordham um, and he he got in at just a perfect time because Roosevelt's new U.S. attorney there was a important Catholic lay leader in New York. And that person's second in command running the office had come from Fordham. Um, and, and Kaufman had these Tammany Hall kind of Democratic machine connections. So he's able to get into the office in a way that some other students might have had some trouble with or, you know, young lawyers would have had some trouble with. And, and that position really kind of makes his name. He he handles these sort of widely reported uh, spectacular fraud cases um, that that put him in the news. Um, and he, he he's sort of in the mold of, you know, the, the New York incorruptible New York City prosecutor, uh, a little bit like Tom Dewey, uh, who was becoming more famous at that time. So much so that that Coffin has a he's very young looking, had a kind of a baby face, kind of fleshy face. And uh, his wife urged him to grow a Tom Dewey mustache so that he would look older for juries. <laughs> uh, and he decided not to wisely. Um, so that's that was his background. And then then in the 1940s, he's uh, a private sector lawyer, but he's representing people like himself, meaning he's not working at a white shoe firm. Uh, a lot of those firms didn't take Jewish lawyers back then. Um, and he's representing up and coming Jewish entrepreneurial tycoon types. So he, he ends up representing the, the new houses um, in their their growing publishing empire. Um, he represents a hotel magnate. And his famous most famous client is Milton Berle, uh, the comedian. <laughs> um, and, he, and he quite savvily uses Milton Berle to cultivate these political connections with his, his main patrons are Tom Clark, who becomes attorney general under Truman, and J. Edgar Hoover. So 
whenever he's in DC, he tries to get, you know, tickets. If like Milton, Milton Berle's show is going to be there, or if they're going to come to New York, he'll try to, you know, have Milton Berle headline a fundraiser. He, he's sort of using Milton Berle actually. Uh, and he becomes a judge at, at age 39 um, in 1949. And he's widely reported then as the youngest judge in America. Um, and that's wrong. Uh, it was uh, Skelly Wright uh, was a little bit like a few months younger. Um, so he's the second youngest judge in America when he's appointed. Um, and then it, just reading a little bit about him, he sounds like, and have you mentioned, he sounds like a very complex figure because he did a lot of good things. But then he did a lot of bad things, too. And I don't know where you come down. Did you did you determine whether Judge Kaufman is a hero or a villain in your story? Well, I, I think he's I think he's both. <laughs> and that, that's why I find him so interesting. And, I, and you know, like that's that's true of most people. Right. Um, you know, who's, no, no one's all good and no one's all bad. And, and the fig, to me, the most interesting figures are are the ones who are the most complex and the most difficult to kind of, you know, ferret sort of ferret out, uh, you know, what their motivations were and, and what was good and, and what was the product of, of you know, bad um, selfishness and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, so I, I think he's a lot of both. Um, he, he did have a lot of, he was really egotistical, he was really insecure, desperate to see his name in the newspaper. Uh, over the years, he had a long running relationship with the New York Times. Um, so he's friends with the Salzberger family, the, the publishers of the Times. He was friends with uh, Am Rosenthal, the uh, lead editor at one point. Um, and, but, you know, he, he the Times often put him in the paper. They, they covered him sort of far more extensively than you might expect. Um, and that eventually got noticed. Uh, that was the cause of some complaint by reporters at the Times and some grumbling by his fellow judges. But, um, you know, he he needed, he desperately wanted that kind of public exposure and public stature. Um, you know, as I said, he's someone who sort of thought, seemed to think at times that the rules didn't apply to him. You know, that, that there was back channel maneuvering to be done and and he would do it. Of course, the, the most famous example of that is what transpired in the Rosenberg trial, where he had ex parte conversations um, with members of the prosecution team. Um, just a which clear, is, is generally frowned upon. Generally frowned upon. Now, I will say, I know that's a joke when you say that, um, uh, <laughs> because what yes. you mean is it's it's absolutely you know grotesquely unethical and prohibited, and and that is true. And I I spent some time arguing that in the book, but I I feel like the reason <laughs> it required the argument in the book is because um, it had been said uh, by, and admittedly, this is by Roy Cohn, um, who's a dubious source, um, but Roy, Roy Cohn had written in his autobiography before he died that a lot of judges did that. Um, and I don't think back in that day, in that era, um, when it was less formal, um, and, and I don't think that's wrong, really. And and some other, you know, very, so some law clerks of Kaufman from that era, including one who went on to be um, a real pillar of the New York criminal defense bar, um, you know, sort of agreed with that, that, that it's that some other judges might have done that too. Um, the, the relationship between the bench and the U.S. attorney's office was very cozy. It, it was a system where the, the system that, you know, was there when I was an assistant U.S. attorney in the 1990s, um, where you file a case and, and it's, you know, wheeled out to a random judge. They didn't have that system in the 40s and 50s. Um, they had they worked the way some state courts still work, where they had trial parts and motion parts and 
you know, uh, special other parts that handle. So in other words, a case didn't stick with one judge. It kind of rotated through the system and would be assigned to a different judge for trial. And as a result of that, the head of the U.S. Attorney's Office, not the U.S. Attorney himself, but the lead executive, would just kind of go and talk to some of the judges and see, you know, well, who's free and who wants this case? And we got this case coming up and it's probably going to get here in October. And is that going to be you? You're going to be in the trial part in October. You know, it's much less formalized. And and Kaufman had been a creature of federal law enforcement, this protege of, as I said, Hoover and Clark. And I, I think he I think he just thought that, you know, those those institutions are above reproach. And for a, it's natural for a judge to be talking to the United States Attorney's Office or the Justice Department. And um, of course, that wouldn't compromise my fairness. I, I think that's if forced to kind of defend this which he never was in the sense that he never commented on the controversy when it became public in the 1970s. I, I assume that's kind of what he would say. Um, I, I a, lot of people would, a lot of people would say that unless you're the defendant. Yeah, of it's, course. Of course. And, and I think it, I will say this. I do think that it's become uh, more and more taboo, you know, coming uh, uh, coming forward. I, I defend a lot of judges that get caught up in, ethical charges. And yeah. uh, it's in almost every one of them. Somebody says they had, you know, ex parte communication. I think yeah. the one phrase I had never heard till I read Fall of the House of Zeus, which was about Dickie Scruggs in Mississippi, they have their own term for it. It's called earwigging. <laughs> and, uh, it's when you kind of go and, you know, talk to the judge in general, yeah, the ear. Terms, you know, earwigging. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you know, look, look we're, we're all familiar with in smaller locales and in state court where these are elected officials and the, there's so much, you know, socializing and clubbiness and familiarity between the bench and the bar. You know, we're, it's less surprising. This is, you know, this is supposed to be the kind of most, uh, I don't know, the, the longest standing federal district uh, in New York and obviously one um, with, you know, a, a sort of an elite bar or, or so it so it thinks. Um, so uh, you, it's a little surprising to find that there. But um, and, and I'm not I do not mean to say that every judge did it. And I'm, I, this is just my guess. I don't know that that any other judge really did it. I just got the sense from the people I interviewed that, that Cone probably was not completely wrong about that. Um, but having said that, it, 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 is, it would not be accurate to say that, you know, the legal prohibition on it or the ethical prohibition on it then was not yet fully defined or hazy. That's not true. There were there were longstanding already codes governing judicial behavior and certainly lawyer behavior um, prohibiting that. And there had that had been true for decades. And there it's not hard to find cases long before 1940, well, 1951, when the Rosenberg trial happened overturning decisions for on the basis of, you know, unethical ex parte contact. So it, it was clearly prohibited. But let's talk a little bit about his most famous case, the yeah. the Rosen the uh, Rosenberg case. But you you have already mentioned a famous event that occurred. I was wondering, were you at his Judge Kaufman's funeral? Yes. Yes. So I was at the and funeral. And so you you saw that incident yes. occur. Yes, that's right. So the, the incident you're, you're referring to um, happened in his funeral, and uh, I was there, and we're sitting, it's in, it was in the Park Avenue Synagogue on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. You know, it's a crowded, it's a crowded sanctuary. Packed. I, yeah, it's packed. As I say in the book, they're like, you know, I was doing a lot of people watching. There are all these other judges there, the, the head of the 
former, I think William Webster, who had been head of the FBI and I think was then later head of the CIA, or I may have that backward, but um, he was there. Um, and just, you know, like a, a pretty prominent crowd, as you would expect, and police officers there, uh, security. So we're sitting in back and um, the rabbi's up there giving the eulogy. And uh, what I hear from behind me I, is somebody shouts, somebody bellows, uh, he murdered the Rosenbergs, let him rot in hell. And and people, it really, it's hard to do justice to what that was like in the moment. Because, I mean, it felt like a gun went off or a bomb had gone. People ducked. You know, it was so shocking. And the, the guy, I guess he yelled so loud that it took a you know millisecond to register what that sound was. And it was a person screaming. Uh, and, you know, you figured it out and you turned around and he was a sort of shabby figure who, who you know, police immediately kind of converged on him and he left the sanctuary. Um, so the, the rabbi, you know, was stunned and took a second to sort of recover himself and, and pick back up. And people couldn't believe it. Um, out out after the service, out on the sidewalk, there were two or three people, and it was freezing days. This is like early February, um, cold day, and people out there picketing um, with signs about the Rosenberg, and, and and that just blew my mind. I mean, I couldn't believe. I, I of course I knew about the case. I knew about his role in the case. I knew about the controversy. What what was so stunning to me was that it was still such a present, alive thing for people that would motivate them to somehow find out where his funeral was going to be. I mean, this is before the, I don't think the obituary had been printed yet. I'm not sure they knew even, um, maybe, maybe that day, the obituary, I don't know. Um, but they found his funeral and they protested, um, his funeral. Um, and so just this, you know, this, like this phrase we have of like, you know, from beyond the grave or like haunted to the grave, you know, like in his case, it was literally true basically. Um, so that, that was so stunning. And it, and it was one of the things that made me think, you know, this this is kind of worth a book, I thought. Tell us a little bit about the Rosenberg case. What What yeah. is it that, that Judge Kaufman did that brings out such animosity about it? Sure. Well, they were they were uh, arrested uh, and tried for espionage. Um, Julius Rosenberg was arrested first in 1950 um, and then. Months went by and Ethel Rosenberg wasn't arrested. She was arrested almost on the eve of trial, a couple months before trial. And the, the leading theory on that is that that was really done to pressure him to confess. And they had they had almost no evidence against Ethel Rosenberg. The, the, the thing that led them to Julius Rosenberg, uh, if you take it back several steps, was that the, the United States had broken the Soviets' code during World War II in a an intelligence operation called Project Venona. So they knew that this espionage ring existed uh, in the United States, and they eventually found uh, Klaus Fuchs, who was a German physicist um, in Britain who'd worked on the Los Alamos project, who has a cameo, sort of a brief appearance in the recent movie Oppenheimer. Um, and he was the kind of leading figure in it who transmitted by far the most important in information to, to Russia about the bomb. But another person in this ring was Ethel Rosenberg's brother, um, David Greenglass, who was a sort of low-level machinist without much education, much scientific education, really, but he found himself assigned to Los Alamos, and he came back with information about what was going on there um, during the war and, and a kind of crude sketch of one of the components of the bomb that was passed to the Soviets in that and other information in 44 and 45. Um, so eventually the FBI cracks all of that, uh, arrests Greenglass, that Greenglass leads them to Julius Rosenberg, and he's arrested as well. Um, they're tried in 1951, shortly after the beginning of the, the Korean War. Um, it's just, it's, you know, the worst possible time for anybody to be tried 
uh, for conveying secrets to the Soviet Union. And um, one of the sort of lines of defense they try in a not so effective way to articulate is that, look, in you know, 1944 and 1945, Russia was an ally <laughs> um, and, and things were very different, but they're they're kind of stuck with this fact that the international climate has changed so radically and um, now nobody has any any sympathy for information conveyed to the Soviet Union. Their, their trial is entirely one-sided. Uh, the only witnesses they call are themselves. They do a poor job in front of the jury. Um, and their lawyers are not seasoned criminal defense lawyers, but communist party lawyers that were, I think, provided to them by the party. Um, and the government has a has a pretty good case, the key witness being David Greenglass. Um, and he implicates, he talks about Julius's espionage, as do some other witnesses. He's the only witness against Ethel. Um, and he's the, the evidence against Ethel that he provides the jury is that she typed up his notes from Los Alamos so that they'd be intelligible to the Russians. Um, that's what puts her in the conspiracy. That's her overt act. Um, so you ask about Judge Kaufman. He, he's he's the trial judge. He's presiding at trial. Um, and the, the two main lines of criticism of him over the years about the trial are that he, he intervened a ton in questioning. And if you read the transcript, it's pretty one-sided. Um, it, it appears that way to me anyway, and I think most observers think so. Uh, he really is putting, a, it seems like he's putting a thumb on the scale um, in favor of the government. And you what, what kind of jumps off the page is that he he believes their case um, and thinks they're guilty. Um, so that's part of it. Um, and then there's a lot of attention focused on the sentences. Um, the sentences are so draconian. Uh, I mentioned Klaus Fuchs. Klaus Fuchs only received 14 years uh, in prison in, in England. He's a far more important figure. Now, it's true that's under different law, and that was the maximum sentence he could get, and he cooperated. So, you know, it's apples and oranges. Um, but the sentence, the sentences for the Rosenbergs were so severe, and the, the thinking by a lot of people was that this was really intended to get them to confess. That he sort of oversentenced them in the hopes that they would cough up names uh, of others who were spying. Um, and when, after Ethel is executed, uh, uh, one of the high officials in the Atomic Energy Commission, uh, you know, later told a New York Times reporter many years later, he's writing his book about the case. She called our bluff. You know, they never did confess and, and would, weren't going to confess. Um, so that that's that was the nature of the case. Was there a, a point where Judge Kaufman could commute the sentence of Ethel, not have her yeah. executed? Yeah, absolutely. But he uh, showed no mercy. Unlike the name of your book, right. he did not show mercy. Right. That's right. Um, he, he could have done that. I, I should also point out that the, it was a very odd sentencing scheme under the Espionage Act. Life in prison was not a possibility. So the, the choices were death or 30 years. And and he knew, he well knew that in that time in the, in the federal system, unlike today, there was a lot of probation and parole in the federal system then. So it, 30 years commonly would not be 30 years. It'd probably be more like 20 um, or 15, something of that nature. So so it did present him with this, this sort of unusual and odd choice of uh, extremely severe and then, you know, more moderate with nothing in between. Um, he, he could have commuted the sentences. In fact, under the law at that time, the Rosenbergs had no choice but to go back to him uh, to get him to reduce the sentence after they exhausted um, their first line of appeals. In other words, they, the Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court would not you know, touch the sentence. Uh, the trial judge then had almost unlimited discretion over the sentence, and he was the only person who could reduce it. And so they made an application to him in late 1952, um, 
And he, and there was a oral argument, you know, in his court and he rejected that. Um, so he, he was not moved. The, the folks who are, um, who were so upset about what happened to the Rosenbergs, were they so upset because of the sentencing of, of execution, death sentence, or were they upset because they really thought the Rosenbergs were innocent? Yeah, well, there there were really were two two. I, I think both is the answer. Uh, okay, but not but not always both together. Um, so back in nineteen fifty one, fifty two, and fifty three, um, there was widespread belief in their guilt. Um, that very few people really thought they were innocent, and and so a lot of the controversy that gradually built up about their sentences prior to their executions, and there were demonstrations around the United States, and there were a lot of demonstrations in Washington, and. Something like twenty thousand people were there in Union Square, uh, the, in New York, the day they were executed. So, so a movement did kind of grow up, um, not just in the United States but around the world. The Pope expressed um, interest in clemency. Picasso uh, went on record saying he thought the sentences were unjust. You know, figures like that around the world weighed in uh, on the Rosenberg case, and almost all of that was that the sentences um, were too harsh, um, and and some of it. Self-interested in the sense or self-interested on the part of the United States in the sense that we were just making martyrs for international communism. And this this in the end would be would de- sort of defeat the purpose um, of advancing American uh, ideals around the world um, in this kind of battle of ideas with communism. Um, later in the 1960s and the 1970s, a kind of different movement grew up around the case, and that was led by the Rosenberg's own children. Uh, they had two children who at the time of the execution were, I think, 10 and eight or eight or six, something like that, under 10 years old, um, young children. Um, By the late 60s and 70s, they are now in their 20s and they had been living under uh, a different name, Mirpol. Um, That was the name of a family that took them in and raised them. Um, So they they kind of, uh, you know, went public basically with, with their identities and with their views about the case. And they wanted to show that their parents not just had been sentenced harshly, but that they had been framed by the government. Um, a, a book came out that kind of helped their cause in 1965 called Invitation to an Inquest, written by two freelance science writers who, who really dove deeply into the evidence and picked apart the case and tried to make the case that, that, that the FBI had manufactured a lot of the evidence that convicted them. Um, and by the time the Rosenberg's kids are trying to make this argument publicly in the early 70s, you know, it's it's like post-Vietnam or Vietnam is winding down. It, it soon becomes post-Watergate. And so this idea that the government might, you know, lie and create fake evidence and spy on people, you know, that that's much more in the culture than it ever would have been in 1952 and 1953. So, so that argument kind of falls on much more receptive ears in among new left activists and, and just liberals around, around the country. Um, we we now know that isn't true. We now know that Julius Rosenberg was in fact a spy. Um, the the jury is very much out still. Uh, all these decades later on Ethel and whether she participated, there's really no evidence that she did. Uh, so, so you know, we've all probably uh, appeared in front of a judge or two that was often wrong but never in doubt. <laughs> and uh, uh, how would you uh, characterize? Uh, uh, what uh, what his response would have been to the 
protesters or to the or to the guy that yells from the back of the the back <laughs> of the synagogue uh, yeah. at his funeral. You know, if he could, <laughs> he could have had a voice then, what do you posit his response might have been? Yeah, well, he he did have an, an energetic response up until the not not at that memorial service, but but right 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 up until the end. Um, so a lot of this came out uh, in the 1970s. As I said, the kids were leading this charge um, and the kids also filed uh, a very early FOIA request. Uh, uh, and so evidence of his ex parte contacts, which appeared in some FBI documents, became public in the 1970s. And he was really he you know, he was dogged by these protesters. They would show up at his speeches. Um, he'd already been the subject of bomb threats back in the early 50s. Those kind of ramped back up again. There were calls for his impeachment. There were op-eds about the case, open letters in the New York Times urging him to open his files. Uh, Over 100 law professors signed uh, a letter that they sent to the House Judiciary Committee um, urging examination of the case. So so all of that was happening. And his way of responding was to enlist allies and friends in the bar. uh, And this is often true today uh, with judges who were under attack for one reason or another. he uh, his lead defender was Simon Rifkin, uh, who had been a federal judge briefly, and Kaufman was very close friends of his. Um, Rifkin is of the firm Paul Weiss, Rifkin and Garrison, um, very prominent New York lawyer. Um, and he, Rifkin was probably the public face of his defense. Rifkin would write op-ed pieces defending Judge Kaufman. Uh, other members of the bar would would do the same. Other judges. Uh, would try to come to his defense. Um, but it w- it was never terribly effective, um, in, in part because this kind of campaign by the establishment, you know, <laughs> it, it, it sort of looked old and stodgy and busty, you know, when compared to these, these younger activists who had uh, sort of the culture and the temper of the times on their side, I think. Um, and it, it really, it really troubled Judge Kaufman over the years. And, and no Response. No, no sort of provocation anywhere out in the world was too minor to uh, sort of escape his attention. So there's a ton of correspondence between him and the FBI. He would try to enlist the FBI to help him. Um, you know, if there's an article somewhere or a, or a play, a play came out about the case in the 1960s. All these memos went back and forth between uh, FBI agents based on Judge Kaufman's calls to J. Edgar Hoover. So he, he couldn't let it go. Um, he's not someone who could rise above. Uh, and he he tried behind the scenes to organize this public defense. You know, as a as a southerner, the uh, I, I, I clerked for a federal judge. I didn't find out about it till I was forty eight years old because that's when he became a federal judge. I worked for him when he was in private practice. <laughs> but he wrote a book about Waitees Waring, who was the uh, uh, judge in the Briggs versus Elliott, which was later Brown versus Board of Education from South Carolina. And uh, wrote the eloquent, you know, dissent, uh, you know, for that and was basically ridden out of Charleston, South Carolina on a rail, died in New York City because they were more accepting, uh, you know, uh, of him. So it's interesting to me. And I think that case was about 1951, you know, as well. So it's just interesting to hear uh, how these judges react to these cultural uh, upheavals, really, as yes. you have in the title of the book. Yeah, he, he Kaufman became in, in a lot of circles in New York. He became a sort of pariah, um, and and he he was not someone who was going to do the reverse and move to South Carolina. So he he had nowhere to go, um, and he cared very much about elite opinion of him. Uh, you know, on the Upper East Side and in the New York Times, 
Um, and so I think it, it was awfully wounding. Um, and he kind of fought back the best he could. And he fought back as vigorously as he could while while publicly, you know, maintaining a facade of sort of, you know, silence. Um, but but he was active in his own defense. Um, it just it just wasn't all that successful, really. Well, after the Rosenberg case, he had several other cases that did show he was a bit of a progressive, I guess. I, I don't know if that may be too strong of a word to use. But no, it's some, not. Okay, some really interesting um, decisions come out on, on, a, on a variety of topics. But this, the first one I was just going to mention was the U.S. the Mezai. Yeah, Mezai, yeah. Uh -huh. Mezai. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and that involves a man named Ignatz Mezai. Yeah. Can you tell us just a little bit about that case and why it was so important? And yeah, how he seems, Judge Coffin seems to totally flip on us. <laughs> right. And that's that's early on. I mean, uh, he, he, Judge Coffin does become a really sort of, you know, prominent and well-known progressive when he's on the Court of Appeals. And that's in the <laughs> 60s, 70s and 80s. This is very early. He's still a trial judge. Um, and, and this, I think, has to be chalked up. Uh, unlike his sort of later evolution, which really was an evolution, this I think is at the same time as the Rosenberg case, basically, and it has to be chalked up to his his sympathy for immigrants, <laughs> which, which some clerks sort of talked to me about it. It came up again in the John Lennon case when he was on the Court of Appeals. He, he never really lost uh, his sympathy for immigrants coming himself from an, an immigrant family. Uh, Mize was a guy who uh, went to, he was, he'd been in the United States, he went back to Hungary, which is where his family was from. He, he was trying to get back into the United States after a trip to Hungary, and this is when Hungary's in the behind the Iron Curtain. And he suspected, although the government doesn't really come out and say it very much, he suspected of being a communist, and, and uh, they will not readmit him. So he's stranded, he has nowhere to go. He's stranded on Ellis Island. Um, and, you know, the government tries to find, not unlike people at Guantanamo these days, the government tries to find a, a third country that'll take him in. Nobody, you know, not surprisingly, nobody wants this, this kind of suspected communist who won't be readmitted to the government. So he's just stuck there. And the press takes to calling him the man without a country. Uh, and the case lands in Judge Kaufman's court. And he says that, you know, no, this guy has, due process. You know, he's here at a port of entry and a port of entry is the United States. And, you know, the the Constitution refers to persons, not citizens, when it comes to 14th Amendment and the Fifth Amendment. And um, he he should get due process. Uh, and that that case goes to the U.S. Supreme Court and he's overruled. Um, and the opinion is written by his his old mentor, Tom Clark. Uh, and the gist of that opinion, which as I mentioned Guantanamo, the, the opinion is cited in Guantanamo era decisions of the last 20 years. That opinion essentially says that, you know, the president has almost absolute power uh, over aliens. Um, certainly the government relied on Guantanamo. It does, you know, there some of those holdings give uh, people at Guantanamo habeas corpus rights. But but it, it is still a live precedent that the government uses. And Judge Kaufman was on the other side of that. Um, so that's yeah, it's an interesting yeah. case. And then you mentioned the John Lennon case, which I'm not sure I even knew about John Lennon yeah. being trying to be kicked out of the United States. But you yeah. want to tell us about that? Yeah, sure. John Lennon. So John Lennon decides in 1971 that he's going to go around the country and hold some concerts to try to get the youth vote up. And so 1972 is going to be the first election of 18 year olds voting in the presidential race. So that, that gets the the that grabs the attention of the Nixon administration. Um, and uh, speaking of South Carolina, Strom Thurmond, uh, who writes a, a letter to uh, 
John Mitchell, Nixon's attorney general, and says, like, what can we can we do something about this? Like, what can we do about this? So they decide uh, Lennon had been here on a series of visas that were just kind of routinely extended, um, like like, you know, visas for people working here, basically. Um, they decide that actually he's ineligible to be in the United States because of a drug conviction in England. Um, he had pled either guilty or some version of no contest in England um, to a drug possession uh, charge there because his lawyers had told him to. It had no real effect on his life, you know. Um, so he just did that to make that case go away. Um, and that was dredged up by uh, the Nixon administration to deport him. And suddenly, um, you know, his his routine visa application is denied and he's now faced with the prospect of having to leave the country. So he had a very good lawyer, uh, quite as you would expect, <laughs> a resourceful lawyer um, who immediately demands, you know, the equivalent sort of the equivalent of discovery from the government and sort of goes on offense and they conduct a public relations campaign. It's very effective. Um, and it gets to the Court of Appeals. And basically, it's one of those cases where we all know judges like this, where Judge Kaufman tells the clerk, like, you know, we're going to, this is not going to stand, you know, go find a reason. <laughs> you, I'm telling you the result, you go get me the reasoning. Uh, and, it, and it's he had a very, very good clerk then. Uh, and the, they what they came up with was that the British conviction did, would not sort of satisfy American standards of due process. And that's because they didn't, it was almost like a strict liability standard in England. In other words, if you had the drugs, no defense such as, oh, it was my friends, or I didn't know these were legal, or I didn't know you know, what they were, that kind of defense, which you might mount to a criminal charge here, was effectively disallowed by British law. And so the notion- was Sienter like, allowed. Yeah, it's that Sienter. The Sienter was what it was. Um, and so the idea was that you know, under immigration law at the time, we were only going to honor a conviction that met, you know, there was an out for convictions that didn't meet American due process standards. Um, and that's what they argued. And that it, it also had the virtue of being a sort of it's almost like a, you know, queen for a day, you know, get out of jail card for one person, because it, this would not have any kind of broad effect on the drug laws here or even on immigration law. It was such an unusual circumstance um, that that also appealed to Kaufman because he said something to the clerk along the lines of, well, we don't want like everybody on drugs get you know, <laughs> this is this isn't going to be a free pass for all the drug addicts is sort of what he was saying. But let's find a way to let John Lennon stay here. But but uh, I like the Beatles, so let's let him stay. Well, he didn't. He 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 knew. I think it's safe to say he knew nothing about the Beatles. And I say that because <laughs> the reason I say that is because his in-laws a few years earlier, his in-laws had given him a birthday present. And, and I only know about that because he the card, the thank you card he wrote from his office is in his papers in the Library of Congress. So I ran across that and. In his thank you card to his in-laws, he said, you know, uh, thanks for the gift. You know, I look forward to getting to know the Beatles this summer um, or at least one of them. So <laughs> I don't think he fully understood it was a band. And, you know, it was not uh, I, I, I doubt he ever listened to. Him. So, you know, uh, it strikes me, too, that, you know, he was on the district court yeah. and then went up to the Second Circuit. And, uh, you know, I know like, uh, you know, confirmations were a totally different thing uh, back then. But uh, did, did the Rosenberg case or any of the other cases have, did it have any effect whatsoever on his uh, confirmation ability to get confirmed? It, it did. It's a, it's, a, it's a really good question. And, and it did not, but not at all in the way that we would expect today in the sense that it would it would be, a, you know, high profile hearings or, you know, an advertising campaign, you know, millions of dollars raised. 
Nothing like that. Um, his in the 1950s, he was already seeking, you know, angling behind the scenes to get himself elevated to the Second Circuit, and his backers were doing the same. And that attempt at promotion for him was seen, and and his backers kind of made the case overtly. We should reward him for the Rosenberg case. He was under pressure then, all the bomb threats. Uh, he had to leave his apartment. He's been reviled in the communist press and then in, in some quarters in the liberal press in the United States. We have to show, we have to stand up for him and show uh, that, you know, he just did his duty under difficult circumstances. Um, the, the One of the people who found that uh, revolting was Felix Frankfurter, um, who uh, proved decisive in preventing Kaufman from being confirmed during the late 50s in the Eisenhower administration. And that was gonna be unusual because Kaufman was clearly a Democrat um, and the Eisenhower administration was trying to fill judgeships with Republicans because they hadn't had a Republican president since you know, you know 1932 um, was the last time. So they were desperately trying to put some Republicans on the courts, but even so they were thinking about Kaufman um, because some of his backers were conservatives um, who approved of the Rosenberg case. Um, so at the last minute, a couple of vacancies opened up and at the last minute, um, Frankfurter went to Herbert Brownell um, in the Eisenhower administration and basically said, "Did you know, we, I, I, it's written in a letter he sent to Learned Hand, uh, I despise a judge who who would say that God told him to impose a death, a death sentence. Um, and that reference to God was because when Kaufman was deliberating over the sentences, he kind of let it be known to reporters that he was meditating alone in his synagogue. He, that was a story he kind of let slip mm -hmm. out there. Well, that's that that to me is one of the interesting aspects because the Rosen, well, uh, I guess Julius Rosenberg, at least, was the son of Jewish immigrants. Yes. Correct. Yes. A as was Kaufman. As was Ethel. Sure. And uh, did, you know, because now in this day and time, uh, you, you know, there's a tweet about the ethnicity of one judge or another from yeah. a certain former president of the United States. You know, that issue comes up. Yeah. Was that ever uh, was that ever in any way a factor, do you think? Yes, absolutely. So so an early line of criticism uh, of him right very shortly after the sentences, just just as some public opposition was beginning to coalesce about whether the sentences had been too harsh. Um, an early line of criticism was that he had bent over backwards to be harsh against the Rosenbergs to prove this Jewish American loyalty to prove that Jews could judge other Jews and we were just as loyal as anybody else. Um, and I think um, I think there's truth to that. Um, I, I think deeper than that was Kaufman's feeling that these, you know, these were people who were on trial who were very much like him. They'd grown up poor immigrant Jewish families, Lower East Side, uh, Julius had his family had been in Harlem, which was a kind of center of Jewish settlement for a while, as Judge Kaufman had lived in Harlem as a like a high school student. Um, so he'd been there, too. Uh, but whereas Judge Kaufman believed so thoroughly in like the American dream and the, the promise of America and how it was a, a sort of promised land for American Jews, you know, he saw the Rosenbergs as, as traitors, not, I think, just to the United States, but really almost to him <laughs> and, and to the Jewish community and to what we had achieved and accomplished you know, in this country. Um, so, so that was very much in his mind. Um, and you mentioned him, and we've talked about the Rosenbergs, the prosecutors were Jewish. Uh, Roy Cohn was one of the leading prosecutors. The U.S. attorney who was there personally prosecuting the case, Irving Sapol, uh, he was Jewish. So, um, you know, there, there were articles saying, um, you know, look, some people are going to say, look at these 
Jews who were communists, uh, like like the Rosenbergs, and that was a common anti-Semitic sort of line of attack that that uh, Jews were typically communists, and so many communists had been Jews, and they they kind of fused the two. Um, and so this article said, you know, they'll critics will say, look, look, more more Jews who are communists, but they should pay attention to the judge who was Jewish and the prosecutors were Jewish. Um, this was kind of defensive Jewish loyalty in that article. Um, yeah, I think I think all of that was swirling around in Kaufman's head for sure. Do you think that led to him? Because you talked about, with, for example, with uh, with John Lennon, you know, like, uh, OK, this immigrant's going to go going to stay, go find a way for this to happen. <laughs> Do you yeah. think he bent back over, uh, bent over backwards on some of those cases where he had an experience to sort of make up for? Or was well, that that's, so that's that's really the leading, you know, that was sort of the leading theory um, that 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 was something that motivated me to want to write this book. I mean, the the idea about Kaufman was that all of his liberalism in the sixties and seventies and eighties was atonement um, for the Rosenberg episode, and and either that was either meant in a cynical sense that he was he was. He was atoning publicly. He wanted people to see that he was liberal so that they would publicly forgive him. And that, you know, the cynical view of that is it was all kind of an act. And he just wanted to remain in the good graces of the New York Times and his friends on the Upper East Side. Um, or there was a more sincere version, which is he, re- he really genuinely did feel bad um, for, for what he'd done as he grew older and as time went by. Um, and he kind of reacted by becoming more liberal. Um, I, I I do think it's true that he cared about his image and he he liked his image as a progressive, for sure, he—he, he, um, I mentioned this protesting of him in the 1970s. Uh, you know, one one example of that was he was going to give a commencement speech at Pomona College, very much like stuff that happens now. And word got up to the administration there that if if he came and he did that, there would be protests and students would walk out. And he was kind of very quietly, more or less, asked not to come, and he didn't. Uh, but he wrote a piece about it in the New York Times magazine entitled A Free Speech for the Class of 75. <laughs> and in that article, it's the only place where he really publicly addressed the Rosenberg controversy. And in that article, he he touts all of his liberal decisions. And he says, you know, Bob, he said, in essence, I'm still being attacked for a decision made before these college students were alive, you know, were born, uh, many of them. Um, so that kind of linked, you know, in, in, in the public mind and seemed linked in his own mind. Uh, his liberalism to the earlier Rosenberg case. But but having said that, he, you know, I, I think he's his inclinations were progressive uh, to begin with. Growing up in the family he grew up in, um, being a kind of Truman Democrat who believed in the power of the state to make people's lives better, um, being, you know, it's almost always favoring immigrants. Um, you know, as one of the one of his law clerks I interviewed put it to me, he really liked these like little, you know, David versus Goliath kinds of cases. Um, and he he was a kind of David supporter from the beginning, I think. So I don't think it was all atonement, really. After writing the book, and obviously you've done so much research, um, going back and reading the trial transcripts and basically yeah. everything he ever wrote, um, do you like him more or like him less? No, I like him. I guess I like him more. Do I like him more or less? That's a great question. Uh, <laughs> I like him more. I mean, I, I I think he's a sort of tortured figure, um, you know, who who did a lot of good, whose who's impulses and inclinations later in his career were right. Uh, you know, to my mind, they're they're right. And admittedly, I'm sort of ideologically in sympathy with his, his side of the ledger. Um, um, I think, you know, he, he was, as I said, he was extremely active. So a lot of people would have, as, as time went on, they would have just sort of kicked back and settled into the comfortable life of 
an appellate judge. He, he did all this stuff extrajudicially that, that was extremely important. He served on a committee that revamped standards for juvenile justice. That was like a 10-year project that produced, um, I think, 20-plus volumes of standards in conjunction with the American Bar Association and the IJA, um, which became kind of influential. Um, he did projects on, he changed the jury system, um, which had been, uh, you know, places had had, instead of selection from things like voter rolls and, and uh, driver's license rolls, things that make uh, you know, more broadly, make jury service more broadly open. Um, previously, there had been a lot of jurisdictions had used what, what's called the key man system, where the head of the head, the person in court, the clerk responsible for rounding up juries basically just called their friends. <laughs> he was on a committee that kind of exposed that practice and got it changed in a lot of jurisdictions. Um, he, you know, the thing that, that certainly wasn't well known for publicly, but really endeared me, endeared him to me the most was this committee he served on um, in the late 70s and early 80s to increase judicial pay and judicial pensions. Um, and it sounds kind of boring and in the weeds, but um, survivors benefits in particular were almost non-existent. Um, and judges really did used to quit over that. Um, and, and he just he was someone who was quite well off. He didn't need the survivors benefits and he didn't need even a higher salary. Um, but he worked tirelessly on that and lobbied, you know, in, in the way that he always would, which is, you know, energetically, he lobbied Congress, he called reporters, he didn't just sit there and kind of oversee a report, he really worked on it. Um, and he, he would joke that it was a thankless task. And, and it's funny, because it was just the reverse, his files are bulging from that period with letters from federal judges all over America, who he didn't previously know thanking him and not just in a kind of generic way, like everybody likes the higher pay, but but sob stories of, you know, disabled dependents who who were not going to, you know, if they were to die, then who was going to provide for their kids, people unable to send their kids to college. I mean, real, real, some of them really heartrending, actually. Um, and that's something he did just because he believed in the value of the federal judiciary and he didn't need it personally. So, yeah, there are a lot of things like that 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 um, kind of for my ultimate view, I guess. Um, I, I think a lot of, you know, the Rosenberg case, a lot of that was his ambition. You know, he's very young at the time. He, he wants promotion. He's angling for the Supreme Court. Um, I think that by the time he achieved some distance and some perspective, um, it changed a little. He was always always image conscious and always, you know, almost hyperactive, but, but I think he'd had some perspective. So, you know, we have, uh, you know, sort of, in, in that era, it seemed if you wanted that promotion, if you wanted to move forward, that, uh, you know, the the folks who sort of got that if they wanted it was the sort of what I would call the trial lawyer politician, you know, yeah. Yeah. folks that knew a lot of folks. They were, you know, they were had a great network. They had been yeah. in court a lot. And so now we see a lot of judges, you know, and, and I think Robin and I have similar opinions on this, you know, that never tried a case. You know, I've been, you know, I was on law review at an Ivy League school and I clerked for, you know, everybody from a magistrate court judge to a U.S. Supreme Court justice. So at 39, maybe, you know, I'm I'm ready to to yeah. go be a judge. And I'm I'm, I'm wondering if uh, because you've been in academia, you've tried cases, you've done a little bit of all of that. And then you've followed the career of this guy who's really you know, he wasn't in the tradition of uh, Robert H. Jackson or uh, Hugo Black or uh, even Lewis Powell, who was 
sort of a big firm, you know, yeah. trial lawyer. Uh, which do you think is better preparation for being a judge? Wow, that's a, that's a, also a great question. I mean, he he uh, certainly I think better preparation for being a trial judge is to have been a trial lawyer. Um, and and right, every now and then these days we read about someone who's appointed and they they've not really tried a case or had experience in trial courts, and that's it's mind boggling to me that they would be put in that position, you know, of suddenly becoming a district judge or, or and at some level, it's even mind boggling to me that they'd want it because it would be such terra incognita, you know, um, if you hadn't practiced there, um, obviously, or, you know, one can assume part of the reason they want it is as a stepping stone to, you know, the court of appeals, um, the, the, you know, strictly academic background, um, you know, and having clerked, let's say at a higher court is, is fits, you know, an appellate judge job a little bit better. Um, but even there, I, I certainly would agree, I, I think with you, I'm guessing, um, that that even their better preparation would be to have had some experience in the trial court. So that by the time you're looking at, you know, what the parties claim is error, you understand what it was like to have presided at a trial and what that would have been like in the moment and how also how important it is, because often it feels and is very, you know, uh, it's the, the importance level is very different when you're there as opposed to what it might look like on the page. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm very much a believer in, we ought to be rewarding experience, you know, rather than simply credentials or, you know, political ideology. Um, and, and he's, yeah, he is someone, he was very, that's a great term you use like lawyer politician that that's absolutely what he was. He knew everybody. He'd done fundraising for the democratic party had all these connections. He knew the other judges. Um, he just, just up and down lists, both legal and political, you know, he was connected and there, there's, how else would you get appointed at 39, right? Like yeah. in that era when when you couldn't really, you know, do what some of these people have done now. Yeah. Very, very interesting. I can uh I think it's a fantastic book and so glad you've written it. Um let me ask you this, Martin. If a, a person wants to write a book, what would your advice now that you've published this this one? What would your yeah. advice be to a, a, someone who wants to write a book? Yeah, is this person sane or, or not sane? <laughs> or, I don't know. <laughs> Always hear it's very hard writing a book. Is that yeah, true? There, are there re how secure are their retirement accounts? That, that's a question I might ask, too. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I'm a, I would absolutely say do it. You know, I, what, what other advice would I give, right? Like, um, you, I, you I did it. Yeah, I did it. And, you know, crazy or not, I I did it, um, and I I did enjoy the process a lot. It's something I've been thinking about forever, and and I did it. I have to say, I did it over the years in in dribs and drabs. I mean, I I started working on this in 1994, and whenever I had time in between jobs, you know, I would do a little work on it. I I went through a period, you know, where I, I wanted to be one of those people who could wake up at five in the morning and, you know, do a couple hours of work on it before I then did legal work. And that lasted about three months. <laughs> I gave that up. The John Grisham uh, method, you know. Yeah, I was younger then. That, that seemed to seem like a good idea. And even then it, it petered out pretty quickly. Um, so, and, you know, other times when my practice wasn't as busy. So I, I, um, I did work on it over the years, but then I got to around 2015, 2016 or so and realized like, I just was not going to finish this unless I devoted full time to it. I'm, I'm someone who I don't do as well with like, you know, 15 balls in the air. I'm, I'm much better with just, you know, if I could focus on one thing that I feel like I'm getting something done. And, uh, so I did take, you know, two, three years or so, uh, as a kind of sabbatical to, to finish this, um, 
And yeah, I mean, there, that, that, so to, as advice for other lawyers who, who want to do something like that, it, does it take a toll on your practice and your finances? You know, yes, it does. It, inevitably it does. But um, I think well worth it if it's, if it's something you, you know, it's something you're really interested in and something you really, um, you know, thought about for a long time and, and you feel like that's the, as I did, that's the only way it's really going to come to fruition, then, you know. Life's not just about how many cases you've had, right? And and you know, two or three more years in practice. I mean, do something different. I'm, I'm a I'm a believer in it for sure. Do you have a uh, a favorite book that motivated you or inspired you? Wow. Um, no, I wouldn't. I don't know that I had one book. I mean, I I grew up. My father was a history professor, so that that that's that's no doubt part of this too. Is I always. You know, <laughs> I grew up reading a lot of history and a lot of historical fiction, like probably the first adult level kinds of books I read were historical fiction, a lot of James Michener, um, you know, books in that vein. Um, uh, my dad used to, I have a couple of brothers who are also lawyers, and I, I think he was like kind of subtly trying to direct us away from academia and into something a little more remunerative like law. And so he would, he would, I remember him saying, you know, look, if you, you want to write history, you're interested in history, you want to write history, you can do that. You don't have to be a professional historian. And he would talk about authors like Barbara Tuckman and, you know, popular writers of popular history who weren't academics necessarily. And I, you know, I kind of took that to heart. Uh, this book is sort of the answer to his to him saying that all these years ago. Um, so I don't know one any one book. I, I love all the King's Men. Uh, it's sort of that hit me in college uh, really hard. And that's about to some degree about lawyers and about politics, oh, and about law. Yeah. So you know uh, the quote then, don't you? Wow, which one? I don't know. The I quote from uh uh from from the stench of the daddy to the uh uh, uh stench of the stroud, there is always something. <laughs> I, I, I used to could do it better uh, I than I can that. now. No, that's, that's been it's a about while. How you can always dig up dirt. You yeah, know, right. It's right, the, right. Uh, <laughs> from all the king's men. Yeah. Well, that, like so many of the themes there you know, the sort of political intrigue and and back channel stuff and, and, you know, public politics and private politics and law. Like, I feel like a lot of that's present um, in this story and, and about this judge. So so I some of that was was on my mind. But uh, that, that might be as close as I could come to a single book, I guess. Now that you've published The Judgment or Mercy, um, what's your next book? I don't know. I don't. I may have to. I, I'm going to try to get an advance for this next one, so, <laughs> and I, I may need an advance to write a next one. So, so I'm not sure. I, I would love to do it again. I, I absolutely would love to do it again. Um, maybe not a full scale, you know, birth to death kind of biography, but I, I do love, you know, this genre of nonfiction about law that homes in on a particular case, you know, yeah. um, and that case becomes a vehicle to talk about all the personalities in the case and all, whatever the social or economic or political stuff is that gave rise to the case. Um, that kind of, you know, that then it could be a historical case or something current, that kind of writing I, I like a lot. And I, I could see, and it's also a little more confined um, as a subject. I, I could see doing that. I mean, I, in doing this, I, I really got, um, you know, what was most interesting to me in a way, what, uh, after a while anyway, it became less his story and more the story of some of these individual cases, which were just fascinating to me. Um, and there are, you know, digressions a bit in the book that you, you know, that can't go on forever. You have to kind of cabin them. And my editor wanted me to cabin them even further. Um, 
But, you know, that, for example, that, that case uh, you mentioned, I think you mentioned the desegregation case, uh, maybe you didn't, the, the desegregation case in the North, he presided over the first desegregation, school desegregation trial uh, from New Rochelle, New York. And and the law, the main civil rights lawyer who was handling that became like super interesting to me and and that whole story. Yeah, I, that's almost a book in itself, I think, or could yeah. support a book in itself. Um, so, yeah, maybe something like that. I think that I think that whole era, sort of from the '50s through the '70s up to the Watergate era, you know, in some ways was just sort of the golden age of trials. Yeah. Uh, one, one of the books I just loved was *The Man to See*, which was about oh, sure. Bennett Williams, and yeah. you know, covered all his trials. And yeah. you know, of course, now we get you know we get Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, you know, <laughs> and uh, right uh, that that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, that's pathetic. Yeah, no, I mean, right? These like these larger than life figures, super colorful trial lawyers. Um, yeah, that's 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 really interesting. Uh, and there 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 were cases I ran across in this book that were just, you know, the facts of them and the people involved were fascinating. The legal rule, you know, that's as a lawyer, you either are or aren't interested in that or can can make it, you know, interesting or try to explain what its current relevance, if any, still is. But but the stories, you know, they those hold appeal. Thank. Well, we'll be looking forward to your your next book. Oh, thank you, thank you. If, it, uh, if there is such a thing, I'd love to come back. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, we really enjoyed talking with you, and and I think I let you know this that we ask uh, our guests the same last question. Uh, every yeah. Guest. Yeah. How do you define justice? Yeah, you did let me know that, and I and therefore I should have a much better answer than I do. Uh, <laughs> having, having been given some advance warning, I don't have a great answer. I, I when I saw that. That's the, you know, the question you end the podcast with. Um, all that really came to mind is that I would answer it sort of the way I think Judge Kaufman would answer it. Um, and and he did write a bit um, in the in the 80s, especially toward the end of his life, about the process of being a judge and what you should take into account. Um, and in part, he wrote it because that was a rising era of conservative legal thought and the beginnings of originalism, the, the premise of which is the personal life of the judge doesn't matter. All that matters is, you know, what, what was the intent of this provision as it existed then? You know, what, is, what do the words mean? And if, if the answer there is clear, then full stop. And at most, we might see what did they intend when they wrote it. But nothing else matters, not contemporary life, not evolution, the evolution of legal philosophy or legal ideas. That stuff's all sort of inadmissible. So I, I would, Judge Kaufman was not a fan of that idea of justice and and I'm really not either. He he believed that to have a just outcome, you need to take kind of everything into account. <laughs> Certainly the obviously the language and and what the framers of a law or a constitutional provision meant. Um, but beyond that, you know, beyond that, what what does it mean in society today? What are contemporary ideas of justice as it relates to really broad phrases like equal protection or, you know, privacy or something like that. Uh, um, what What's the latest, you know, writing on it in the academy? Like he, he all of those things, what, what are the judge's own sort of moral or ethical impulses one way or the other? Um, he, he didn't think you could really reach justice without taking everything into account. And I, I tend to think that's true. I, I tend to think that's true. Also, I think of the word context that yeah. you have to put everything within the context, yeah. including the year you're deciding the case, 2023, because yeah. we're a completely different society than when our constitution was first drafted. So, yes, um, yes. yes, yes. But, you I know, could... I'm not a judge, Martin. 
<laughs> Even better, you have a great podcast. So. <laughs> Oh, well, thank you so much. I want to remind our listeners, we've been talking uh, just a delightful hour with Martin J. Siegel. Uh, and you can more learn more about him. He's a Texas lawyer and he's author. You can more, learn more about him at his law firm website, which is SiegelFirm.com, or at his author's website, MartinJSiegel.com. And you can get his book, Judgment and Mercy, The Turbulent Times of the Judge Who Condemned the Rosenbergs, on Amazon.com and Kindle and in hardback. Uh, and you can also easily purchase it at his website, martinjsegal.com. Martin, thank you so much. We really enjoyed yes. our, our talk with you and thanks for being on the show. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you guys. I really appreciate it. Well, we, 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 we get this edited. Robin and I do another little pitch at the end okay. to stick yeah. around for it. You're, you can if you want to, but you don't have to. But uh, okay. We uh, so far we've never had a guest stick around. Never, we hadn't had anybody stay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. I guess I'll right. I guess I'll join the uh, the race. That, that's right. But yeah. uh, boy, this has just been fascinating. I've really enjoyed yeah. it. Thank you so yeah. much. Yeah, I really I really appreciate it. Uh, I'm actually going to be in Georgia in two weeks. Weirdly, I'm going to be at the uh, the a, a friend, the wife of a friend, also a friend, um, is an administrative law judge uh, somewhere near Atlanta, I think, and they're they're having their conference. And uh, so she arranged to have me come speak. What, what kind of administrative law judge? Man, that's a great question. I don't know. I mean, I know she handles. There's, there's really kind of two. I'm assuming it's a state administrative oh, it's law state. Judge. Yeah, sorry. It's state. So there's like the workers' comp judges, you know, and then they've got a separate office of state administrative hearings. And they do uh, they do uh, like candidate eligibility. They do driver's license. standards. Yeah, all she- of yeah, I I know she does like which which one of those two types would do like school related stuff. I know when I probably OSA the uh, yeah. office of yeah. whatever it's called OSA it they do professional standards for teachers and and that sort of thing. Yeah, I could actually here I'm gonna look it up. I mean, she's right here in my email, so I'll just see what she's. That's uh, the si- that's the same group. So uh, you know, yeah, OSA it is OSA. Yeah, yeah. They had uh, you remember when, uh, in fact, I got sort of asked to get in this case, but they want me to do it pro bono. And I didn't feel that strongly about it. Uh, But it was when Margaret uh, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, they were trying to disqualified under the under the uh, 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 insurrection clause. Yeah, I remember that. It had to go to the OSHA thing. Yeah. Thing. Osa, yeah, and uh, of course, it was some group out of Massachusetts that wanted to do it, and they wanted yeah. me to sort of be local counsel for free. And I was like, yeah. I, 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 <laughs> I, I think she's awful, but you know, uh, I don't know that I want to be. <laughs> uh, it seems, seems like a long shot, and, and it was a long shot. It was a long shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I can, uh, I, I can lose, I can lose my paying cases without having to lose free. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, I was I was happy to get this invitation to come there. It's in Savannah. They're flying me there. That's all going to be fun. But I oh, yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, no, I know. It's great. I, I just like uh, the connection between this New York judge and this case, you know, the Rosenberg case, everything else. And, you know, this, this group of judges in Savannah was not apparent to me. So all I could ask her was like, do administrative law judges in Georgia now have the power to like sentence people to death? Like, is that <laughs> please tell me that hasn't happened, you know, so. Uh, no, because <laughs> <laughs> that's probably next here. So, uh, you know, we'll see. Yeah. 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 I was, uh, I, 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 uh, I don't, I don't, I didn't know quite what to expect from that. I watched that 
Paxton impeachment, oh, not because God. I care about Paxton, yeah. but because they had uh, Dick DeGarren and Rusty Harden on there. Yeah. And I, you know, as a trial lawyer, those are two guys that, you know, I hope when I'm 80, I can, I can, <laughs> I can still, uh, you know, boogie my ass into the courtroom every now and then, you know. But, yeah. Well, it wasn't, it was an all-star lineup of, of litigators and the trial lawyers for sure. Uh, but that, I think that result was preordained. Yeah. Sadly. Well, thanks a lot, Martin. We yeah, appreciate absolutely. it. All right. Thank you guys. Appreciate it. All right, Lester, now is the time in our podcast where we always like to discuss a little issue in the news that's law-related that caught our eye and seems kind of interesting. And the one that I have today is out of Maine, of all places. Seems like Maine's having problems with their lawyers. But Maine's top court affirms suspension of lawyer who asked staffer to take his CLE courses. (laughs) what possibly could go wrong (laughs) (laughs) so so this attorney in maine uh there was a certain number of uh hours cle hour continuing legal education hours you could get online but it was one of those where you had to be you had to prove you were watching by pressing a a button every once in a while to say i'm still here i'm still here and he didn't want to do that he couldn't be bothered with that so he asked his secretary to to do that and they got text messages between the secretary and the attorney that basically confirmed he had done that um and that he wanted her to hit the 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 button to say i'm present during the cle and the the main um supreme judicial court didn't didn't appreciate that very much and so they um they suspended him and uh, and then, as it turns out, he gets a little extra suspension because they found out that he had also um, been in could he he had also had a a personal personal relationship, I guess I should put it, with one of his clients mm-hmm. um, in a divorce. And they didn't like that one either. Well, I can I can certainly see the 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 latter uh, causing a problem uh, yeah. for, for the lawyer. Yeah. So um, he he is suspended up in Maine, but um, lawyers was, don't, you know, have, don't have your secretary. You, don't have your secretary glad. take your CLE. I'm kind of glad you told me about that second one, because as you were telling me about the CLE thing, which, you know, obviously it's dishonest and it's stupid. <clears throat> but I was thinking. Doesn't the bar know that their lawyers doing a lot worse things than that that they Good could point. be out be out there looking for? But it sounds like this may have been uh, tangentially related to uh, to the other thing uh, uh, extracurricular activities with his client there. Right, I agree. So, what's your what's your news item? My news item is from CBS News, and it's entitled. House Democrats press for cameras in federal courts as Trump trials and Supreme Court session looms. And uh, it's basically about a group of Democratic members of Congress who believe that they ought to allow television cameras in federal courts. And I'm going to diverge from my article 
just a little bit because this is sort of based on the Trump trials. But I just want to talk generally, not you know, without regard of whether it's Donald Trump or Joe Biden or anybody else. But, you know, the courthouse used to be a place where the whole community went and watched a trial and was able to uh, talk about what was going on, to see what the people that were involved in that trial were doing. And uh, in this day and age, just like we don't climb up on the stump anymore, people get on social media or whatever else. To me, it's very key to have open courts uh, that people be allowed to see what goes on in there. Now, I know I probably won't win praise from any of my federal judge friends because I think, uh, you know, it's a hassle and there are things that you've got to do, you know, with that. But if you look at some of the hearings that have been held in the Trump trial, you've had journalists who have to basically have a runner go outside and get their phone to phone in, you know, what's what's happening and things like that. So I do think, and and for the U.S. Supreme Court in particular, for an institution that has that much effect on American life, uh, what they do when they're about the people's business, I think ought to be something that the people ought to be able to see. So maybe this has been brought up at a time, you know, because of this, but I think it's uh, it's something that should have been brought up uh, long ago and not in the context of that one case, but in the context of 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 every case. I totally agree. It's long past uh, due that we have um, the have TVs and and uh, show the public federal court cases. They obviously do it here in state court. Um, you know, Judge McBurney, as you you've been in front of him, uh, has a the last YouTube, yeah, he has his own YouTube uh, station or what I don't even know what you call it, YouTube. Um, yeah. So he, every one of his criminal trials and the JQC stuff is on YouTube. So that's um, what I mean. I've spent four days so far, and they, uh, yeah. you, you can go look at the comments too about what people think. <laughs> yeah, it's like you're you have an ongoing focus group right as you're trying the case. But we we have often talked to judges who have been guests on the show. Does it throw things off? Does it throw a wrench in things to have cameras in the courtroom? And not a single one of them has said it bothered them or led to any lawyer acting out of turn or any anything like that. They've had no problem with cameras in the courtroom. So that that's a excuse that judges might use, but it's not realistic. I always love so, the one. You know, oh, somebody's going to go into showboat on TV like correct us TV. There weren't lawyers showboating in court, and you and I both know that there's one person that if you're doing your job, you better show out for, and that's your client. Your and they're client, sitting, for sure, yeah. Uh, whether or not you're giving them a vigorous defense or uh, putting up a vigorous case, if you're the plaintiff, you know. I, I also. I also like your point about it's the public's right to know and need to know, because I think if the public is involved and watches the trial and then there's an outcome, they accept the outcome more because they've seen the whole thing. Nothing's been in the dark. They understand the outcome and they accept it more. And I think that's very important for the rule of law. And, and I think that's one reason, you know, with the U.S. Supreme Court cases that have come down recently, uh, you 
uh, uh, read, you, you know, you just learn about it at the decision. It's not followed, you know, going through. The public doesn't hear the arguments go back and forth, although now they do audio, you know, stream. Yeah. It's really difficult to tell who's who's talking, yeah. what the situation is. But I think if you really want to instill public confidence in something, uh, you know, it, it it needs to be out in the public domain where they can access it. Totally. Totally agree with that. Let's hope it comes to fruition. Um, we'll be looking for that. Well, what a great show. We want to thank our sponsor, the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. You can l- learn more about the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation at cuincourtpodcast.org. We also thank our producer, Philip Hoover, and we thank our listeners. You can learn more about Lester Tate at akintate.com and more about me, Robin Fraser Clark at gatriallawyers.net. Um, and you can find this episode and all of our episodes of See You in Court wherever you get your podcast. So until next time, Lester, we'll see you, see in, you court. in court. Thank you for listening to See You in Court, brought to you by the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Please subscribe to this podcast and consider writing a review. You may find related documents to this week's episode on our website, cuincourt.podbean.com. Please send any questions, suggestions, or ideas to cuincourtpodcast at gmail.com. We thank Noreen Hassan, Associate Professor and Director of Outreach and Community Engagement of the Georgia Institute of Technology School of Literature, Media, and Communication, and the Georgia Tech students who help bring you this podcast. I'm Fred Smith, Executive Director of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. You may learn more about the foundation at fairplay.org. On behalf of Robin Fraser clark and Lester Tate, until our next episode, we'll see you in court.